Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, very pleased to see you this evening uh, for this session in the 2015 uh, LSE Literary Festival. Uh, I'm Angus Wren from the LSE Language Centre, where we teach both modern foreign languages but also literature and uh, comparative literature uh, in, in a sort of mainly modern context and a political and social, social context. Um, and it's my great pleasure today, together with my colleague Dr. Olga Sobolev, um, uh, to be able to welcome two guests here who are very much involved in the cultural life of this country. That's an overstatement, but it's not an overstatement at all. Uh, one way or another, you will have encountered work by both of the figures you see here in, in the last few months in, in some way, form or other. Um, Jeremy Sams, his work, I think, just across the street in Covent Garden at mm -hmm. the moment, that's right. Brecht co uh, co uh, collaboration of Mahogany is currently on, on stage, and you've got much more coming up. And you've, um, am I allowed to tell the, the world that you also did the adaptation of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, for example, yes. <laughs> um, and made it into a very successful musical? And I think you have also, also directed things like The Wind in the Willows as a stage show. Uh, mm -hmm. And in addition to that, you've also done work in your know, uh, musician and composer as well as um, a translator, and you've. Um, been um, involved in writing the music for some major cinema releases, mm -hmm. uh, The Persuasion of, of Jane Austen, I think, okay. and uh, also, was it uh, Enduring Love? Of, That's right. Ian uh, <coughs> McEwan. Uh, but uh, I'd, I'd, I'll come back in a second and just also introduce David, our second speaker. David is, uh, our, I think, one of our premier poets, a fact recently recognised because he's been awarded the 2015 uh, T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry, which is the premier prize in, in this country for his collection um, Fire Songs just out, uh, I think last last year was it? Yes. yes. And um, yes, a great uh, sort of Philip I think for a career to be uh, getting this award at this stage and it's, I think, hope, hope we'll be able to hear you re perhaps read from it during the course of our discussion uh, this evening and that will take us back to the main theme which is adaptations and translations because some of the poems in this collection are also poems written with a musical context in mind, uh, with collaboration yeah. with Harrison Burke, yeah. who's a, one of only only one of at least two or three composers that you have uh, worked with. I think Jonathan Dove and um, yeah. Hugh Watkins Hugh as Watkins, well. Yeah. So, mostly um, with Harry. Yes, and it's, I think this is something like your tenth volume, is it? Fire songs. You've yeah, it is. Yes, so not counting versions, as it were. Not counting. What we might call translations, for want of a better word. <clears throat> uh, but coming on to this question, coming back to you, Jeremy, on this question of the fact that you're a translator from French and German, I think when we met before, you briefly mentioned how you were educated in French and German. I think it's an interesting story. That, oh. uh, and there's an interesting question about parental influence as well. Yes. Can you tell, tell, tell the audience about that? The, the good, I mean, I translate from French, German, and Italian, and I only translate from languages I actually speak or read um, and uh, looking back on what I thought was a normal childhood turns out to be not normal at all um, my father was a musician and a musicologist and a Shakespeare scholar and uh, a linguist and most kids get taken to the football and, um, and get played with, I didn't I, we, had, we had sort of compulsory language so once a fortnight there was a French day and a German day in which we only spoke French and German. And the good thing about that, and looking back on it, is that I now know, do not have what a lot of people of my age and, and, and 
fighting weight have, which is embarrassment around speaking languages. And it's often been to my detriment. I will plough in any language at all. And I've never, ever felt self-conscious about that. Because as a child, automatically, my mm. dear dad, bless his heart, you know, would show me a magpie and explain... He wasn't interested in magpies at all, but the fact that it was this in Italian and this in German and this in, in French um, and this in Latin. <laughs> and I don't even know now whether that's a good way of educating a child. It's a way of... Put, putting a child in someone else's brain. And what it means is that, that I've never had difficulty or embarrassment about, about, about foreign languages. And they've seemed to me like a sort of English, or vice, <laughs> or vice versa. And I know this because when I've strayed into reading through other languages or getting to know other languages, I feel sometimes as, as, as lost in, in vocabulary and grammar. But I think if you get given some sort of Chomskyite cell at an yeah. early time, an early age. So I'd recommend anyone with children just getting. <laughs> I think, but as long as it is actually combined with a bit of football and um, <laughs> a bit of reality as well. Sounds, uh, sounds like that. There's sort of there's a comedy about tourists which called if this is Thursday, it must be Italy. You know, no, and it's, it's Tuesday, it's Tuesday it must be Belgium. That's yeah, actually right. Like that, yeah. Exactly right. But uh, you're, you're you're actually not. Spelling out that your father was Eric Sam. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a musicologist and he's a Shakespeare scholar and yeah. he wrote all the books on leader. Yeah. And the main thing that I got from him, again, I've realised it. Actually, he's now... There's a website I discovered on his stuff and in this website, letters from him are still reprinted and, and, and stuff. So I used to read letters from my father, who's long dead, about me, which is very strange indeed. Um, but what he really taught me was about music and about how words turn into music. And again, when I was a kid, I didn't recognise that this was in any sort of way a miracle or a weird thing. It's just that he would play me this bit of Schumann, this bit of Wolf, and he'd say, well, the reason music does this is because the poem does this. And he would explain to me very, very simply, a composer, any composer, and opera, including an opera composer, will start with words. So Schumann or Schubert will get down a volume from his of German poetry, mm. put it on his piano, and he will play the poem. And that's what music that involves words is. It's someone playing poetry. But most important, they're playing the, the feelings that come from the poetry. The thing that was new to me when I got older, which was not my father's interest at all, was theatre. And for me, the missing ingredient in mm. all of these things is drama. So actually... Yeah, the, the drama is quite a different thing from, from although there is poetry, there is drama in poetry. But actually, two people, talking to David before this about the difference between writing for a stage and writing poetry. Two people coming on a stage and both having a conversation which turns into something that mm. wouldn't have otherwise. And again, actually, as I get older, I realise that's rather musical. Um, if I said, OK, uh, what's this? Someone comes on and says something. Or rather, we set up where it is. Someone comes on and says something, has straight the opinion. Someone comes on and hears it and says something else. They argue, and eventually they work things out they've never known before, and in the end they reach conclusions. Now, is that a good play? I think it is a good play. It's also a description of sonata form, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> the form in which most um, classical music is. Dialectic, discussion, conclusion. Conclusions you would not have reached had you not had the discussion um, counter-arguments that would not have been stated. So that's so. as I get more and more um, old, what I realise is that there's not 
two or three things. There's not poetry and music and drama. There's just one big Gaia-style thing. Which I'd like to give a name, like... (laughs) At the risk of making this a Freudian analysis session, you are now... Translating leader, I think. I you? translating leader, which is something I swore I would never do. My dad, you know, made me swear almost in a deathbed I would never translate leader because, and I am actually doing the three big Schubert song cycles, and I feel a bit safe from that because it's not Goethe, it's not Eichendorf, it's not Mörike, it's mm-hmm. Wilhelm Müller, who's a perfectly good poet, and he meant a lot to Schubert, but. If you look at it in the abstract, it looks a bit more like Gordon Frey's and greeting cards than, um, <laughs> than, than you're not dealing with a great writer. But we are dealing with a writer who Schubert was moved by. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. almost good enough for me. Any, the, 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 the poet who made Winterreiser yeah, yeah. and Schöne um, and which is the first one I'm embarked on right now. So my father would be turning his grave. And it's, it's getting quite a lot of prominence, isn't it? Because I think Ian Bostridge, who is appearing here, mm-hmm. I think tomorrow or Friday, has been writing, has published recently about... Fantastic yeah, book yeah, on Winterizer. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to read that Ian Bostridge book on Winterizer, amazing. And the connection between Bob Dylan and, and all, Liar Man, is it? All that, yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. right, yes. And I think it's compelling, isn't oh, it? Oh, completely yeah. compelling. So, um, but uh, do you feel it's a different process from translating a, an opera libretto? Yes, because an opera libretto is basically about story. <clears throat> uh, and story is something else. Story, and of course, within an opera libretto, there are moments which are rooms and moments which are corridors, the bit of story that takes you from A to B, and then you might sit, you know. So Don Jose gets give, thrown a flower by, by Carmen and then gets put in prison. That's story. He then says, oh, this is amazing. This, this flower has still got its perfume. It makes me think of you. That's poetry. But the one wouldn't happen without the other. In, uh, in Leader, basically, it's... It, but to be really honest, these, these distinctions are more and more blurred and less and less interesting and significant to me. Yeah. And yeah. actually, feeling, honesty of feeling, discovery of feeling, that's what's interesting. And the song, and often when someone sings a song, is not just about feelings, it's also about feelings about feelings. How do I feel about feeling this? And that's where music is, and that's where poetry lives, and (coughs) that's where a lot of good theatre lives. So my hunch is that it's all, we're really talking about one thing, and the similarities are more interesting than the differences. David, on that point, you've, within the Five Songs um, publication, there's a, a sequence, isn't there, called Songs from the Same Earth? Songs from the Same Earth, yeah, that's right, which Harry said. Um, that was an interesting process because um, <clears throat> um, uh, when Harry and I um, uh, read a piece called The Corridor, which was at Aldborough, um, um, Mark Padmore uh, and Elizabeth Lawrence were the... Were the um, it was about the moment when Orpheus turns and looks back. So it was that sort of frozen moment <clears throat> expanded on or exploded. Um, and Harry and I were walking up the beach and he said, he said, that Mark Padmore's got a good voice. Um, why don't we write something for him? And I said, that would be a fantastic idea. Um, like what? He said, well, you know, like, like Venturizer. <laughs> and I said, well, how long have you got? Um, um, anyway, I wrote a piece um, and sent it to Harry, and I already knew it was too long. And he wrote to me and sort of phoned me and said, it's too long. Um, so then I read another piece, and he said, 
um, there are words in this, and I'd never, this had never happened between myself and Harry before, ever. Um, he might have asked for a little change here and a little change there. Um, significantly in the minor tour, um, there was a moment when he asked for a change, which I'll tell you about maybe later, which was, which was enormously significant for me. Um, uh, but it, it had always normally been more text, I need more text. And, uh, and what happens is that, that, that um, I'm slightly digressing, but nonetheless, we'll sit down and talk about the piece that we're going to do, sort of talk quite lengthily, go away and think, come back, talk some more. Um, and um, I might make some notes. Harry quite likes to draw things, he likes to draw, he likes to represent things graphically. So he'll say, it looks like this, and he'll draw a pattern on in my notebook. Um, and, um, and, and then, generally speaking, when, when we think we've got it, you know, more or less, not from A to Z, but maybe from A to D, um, I'll go away and, and, and start work, and I'll, generally speaking, write pretty much the whole thing, although there might be moments when I call him up and say, look, I've thought about doing this, what do you think? It's quite a departure from what we said. Um, um, but nonetheless, uh, I get to the end of the piece and I give it to Harry and, um, and he'll start work then. And, and, and then the weight of his composition starts to tell on mine, which is the way it should be. So changes, modifications, but usually minor. In this instance, um, it, was, it wasn't like that. So I wrote this second piece and he called me and he said, well, there are words in this that I can't set. Mm. And I said, well what are these words that you can't say? I, I can't believe this for a moment. And he said, underpass. <laughs> and I said, of course you could set the word underpass, Harry. I'll sing it to you down the phone. <laughs> um, but, but I knew that something else was going on and I didn't know what. So I said, oh, I'll have another go. This is a perfectly good poem. In fact, it went into a, my collection before this one. It's called Night. Um, and it was called um, Contre Jour, the second piece. So I wrote a third piece, and I can't what it was. It'll come to me in a moment. But anyway, that didn't work out for some reason or another. And what happened then was that Harry wrote to me, which I, so I knew, I thought this was getting serious. You know, he's written, a, <laughs> written me a letter, starts with, my dear David. And he said, did I not say that I didn't want a continuous narrative line, a, through, a narrative through line? And I said, well, actually, Harry, no, you, you didn't say that. <laughs> So I said, I see what you want. I can see what you want. So I wrote songs from the same earth. Um, and it's called that because what Harry said was, he said, I want, I w of course I want it to be narratively linked, but I, don't, I, want, I want it to be from the same earth, but, but not, not a, a, a through line. So that's how songs from the same earth came about. Um, <coughs> yeah uh, the thing about Minotaur what happened there was that um, there was a moment when um, Theseus Ariadne says to Theseus if, if you if you um, if, if I find a way to ensure that you get out of the labyrinth having killed the Minotaur because getting out of course was the problem not getting in killing the Minotaur was a sort of minor kind of moment um, <laughs> small task and then there was a business of getting out if I find a way of, of <coughs> um, making that possible for you um, the deal would be that you take me back to uh, Athens as your wife 
So there was this, I developed this sort of corrupt sexual deal between them, um, which was, in a sense, one of the, one of the cruces of the, of the piece. And, and Harry called me and he said, well, what happens after that? Um, and I said, well, I think if you look, it says something like kind of staged black reset. You know? mm -hmm. He said, no, 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 I, she needs something, she needs something. Um, and I said, well, what? Um, he said, well, a little aria. And I said, yes, I know that. <laughs> How long? And he said, I don't know, about six or eight lines. So I said, okay. And he said, and make it dark. And I said, Harry, you must be well aware by now that dark is my default mode. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, make it darker. So I wrote this piece called The Cretan Sun is Black. <laughs> um, and... And when Christine Rice sang it out in rehearsal to the piano school, you know, to the, to, to the repetitors, um, reduced version, um, everything in the rehearsal room stopped. Everything stopped. Uh, every hair on the back of my neck stood up. Um, I was crying. It was just the most extraordinary moment because it was the first time I'd heard this, mm -hmm. this aria song, even though it wasn't in the orchestra. And everything went quiet and then she finished and nobody applauded or just went on and I was standing next to T Tony Papano and he said this is you and Harry at your best and I said well actually he asked for that yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know it wouldn't be there had he not asked for it so that kind of you know organic growth um, that sort of um, natural and sort of in a strange, strange way dramatically logical uh, development's very important to me and it does happen from time to time but only when I've delivered the libretto. When I delivered Gawain to Harry um, he was living in the south of France and um, he had this um, little workroom which was separate from the house. He'd always had it wherever he went he had this octagonal I think it was um, workroom um, and he took the plans with it wherever he went, so it got built by the local builder, you know. And the French didn't know what to call it, so they called it Le Kiosk. <laughs> and um, so my wife and I got there, and um, she said, well, he's in the kiosk, so I knocked on the door. And Harry came out, sort of, and it was brilliant sunshine, <coughs> something, something blind sunshine, he looked at me and peered like that, you know, and I said, go away in, Harry. <laughs> I gave it to him. He weighed it in his hand like that. And he said, well, it's not fucking Siegfried, is it? <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of Siegfried, uh, and, and, and German, and, and you were saying that Müller is not the greatest poet in German language, mm -hmm. it's interesting, but the cycle is the greatest cycle in, mm. in music. Um, what about Wagner? Weirdly, I would say the same about Wagner, not the greatest poet in the, <laughs> in the German language. <laughs> but... What are the weaknesses, actually, then? Well, it's funny. You would only expose the weaknesses of Wagner were you, were you to make it something that it wasn't, which was, is poetry. It isn't poetry. It's any more... I mean, it's interesting that you published what you've done, because, but the primary, primary purpose is to engender music. And Wagner's fascinating in that respect, because um, actually the Ring Cycle, which I have translated um, in an idle afternoon... Um, uh, is very interesting because, most fascinatingly, the the last opera, Goethe Demeron, which is a good six hours of 
or if not more, and fantastic, was the, was the first thing that he wrote. In, he wrote text. He wrote text in reverse order. So Rheingold, which is the very first one, he'd really got his writing mm. sorted by then, but not the music. Did he actually declaim the poems? Before yes, he ever absolutely, but, but to, to a large yeah. group of admiring um, yeah. <laughs> um, family. Uh, absolutely. Um, but actually, the dramaturgy of the uh, of the of Rheingold is is phenomenal, yeah, yeah. and it is the 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 first piece. And actually, I think about one of my top ten operas. It's an amazing, yeah. amazing piece. Goes to Demerol is much more rangy because, as I say, he was a lot less um, experienced at doing the, the yeah. libretto, but and much more experienced when it came to music. So it's a, it's a very odd connection. Goes to Demerol. Um, a rangy piece, quite cuttable in many, many ways, not musically, yeah. but in terms of scenes. There's some scenes that most people who Wagner fans, even the biggest di- Wagner diehards, would jib at maybe the first scene of Act Two of Gustav Demerol. You know, I think a little <laughs> snip there, you know, half an hour or so. Um, but uh, but it, he's really, really amazing. And what amazes me most about Wagner is actually where he sits in, in the history of, of opera. And he sits like this. There's opera, there's Weber maybe, there's Rossini, bit of Meyerbeer. Then Wagner lands like a, a UFO in the middle of the 19th century from absolutely nowhere. Um, this, uh, this craft, yeah. this massive red craft, like, no one knows what it was, what it's made of, yeah. or it, where it comes from. It's like Close Encounters, people. <laughs> and like Close Encounters, people are still making models of that, you know, mountain out of mashed potato to this day and because he lands in the 19th century like that you either do one of two things you either go around him or you go through him but you cannot ignore him mm. and then and so he's a big roadblock if you like on, on, on music or he's um, a way in and through and it interests me this because um, the similar figure I think in terms of musical theatre which I liked which I'm very interested in right now, is Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim, however, unlike Wagner, his, his, his forebears, his, his lineage is absolutely clear down to you know, even names and, and birthrights and so on. However, he's a man who's done so much in the genre that you either, you either write like Sondheim or you don't write like Sondheim, but there's no way of ignoring him. So that's what I think about. In terms of the language, is there something called Stabreim? There's something called Stabreim, yes. It's terrible. Well, Stabreim is is basically um, how do you rhyme if you don't rhyme? So, um, actually, I've got a good Sondheim example of that as well. Um, So, Wagner doesn't actually rhyme at all. Uh, There's just one or two lines in in Goethe Demerung, so in uh, Rangel, that that rhyme. But apart from that, he doesn't. However, what he does do is he alliterates. Mm like Bilio, and so there's alliteration, and, and actually, to our, to our ear, I think it sounds a bit half-timbered to my ear now, um, a bit mock-tudor, shall we say, because he does this like If you know The Yeoman of the Guard by Gilbert Sullivan, <laughs> there are these and thous, as it were, within modernity, which is, which is what you get in Wagner. Um, and he does a lot of, a lot of rhyming of, of assonance and great alliteration, to the point of ridiculous sometimes, and all that stuff, just all, um, he, he lines them up. And if you do that in English, it does seem slightly mannered. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I'm only the second person, actually, weirdly, to have tr- to no the third to have translated the whole ring. No one else has bothered. <laughs> um, and um, it's interesting. Yes. So I put rhyme in there, and I put uh, English rhyme in there, and a few other tr- tricks, if you like, rhymes, internal rhymes, internal assonances. Po- what I would call poets' tricks, <laughs> um, but only to give an aura of of artifice. But if I'd done exactly what Wagner did, it would seem eccentric. Mm. But tr- the idea of translation is is a, an interesting one in that respect because if you actually go word for word and syllable for syllable, I get it all the time in opera. Why can't you get the word? You know, you've translated the word "tort" as "death," I notice, Jeremy. Well, you, you really haven't found the deep darkness of the German "tort" in your English mm. pathetic attempt as "death" in English. <laughs> I'm doing my best, dude. You know, it's. Uh, um, but people, uh, people get very. Once you get to that end of translation, you are missing everything. For me, the trick, and I've changed my view on this a few times, but basically it's the same, which is if you stand back as far as possible, imagine you... I mean, I'll go further. Imagine what, if you're doing a Mozart opera or Wagner opera or a Bohème or Puccini or whatever, what, te- what English text, if Puccini, Mozart or Wagner have received through the post or through their door or in their kiosk, would they have set to, to come up with this work? So if you can go that far back, then um, then you can come up with something that lives and breathes and sounds like and feels like, but actually sometimes word for word is difficult. That's why I'm forever, and actually funnily enough, right now, right now, um, talking to singers about, oh, this word isn't the same as the German. Well, hmm. no. My, my most extreme one like that, which I've actually said before, was the... There's a singer in ENO, and I translated um, Verdi's Macbeth, and he, he was playing Macbeth, and he said he liked the translation very much, but the vowels were very different from the Italian. And I said, I'm really sorry, I'll, you know, sorry about that. Then he had to thought he said also the consonants were different. From the <laughs> <laughs> and he really meant it. So I said, so apart from the vowels and the consonants, <laughs> you like the translation? He said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Um, vowels are an interesting one and on high notes it's uh, one that one does have a sort of obligation to write mm. a, a vowel that's going to be easy to melismatize as they say in the trade mm. on or in order to do runny notes or to sing high notes on and on those occasions I try and do exactly what the original does and funnily enough so does Lorenzo de Ponte who I've translated a lot of his mm. <coughs> he'll always end <laughs> phrases with Vowels ending with uh, verbs ending with ar, ar, festijar, whatever, because he knows that Mozart's going to do a lot of ah, and it's going to sound like ah anyway, so you might as well write ah. However, that changes from opera to opera, and in the Magic Flute, the first Pamina must have loved ease because her her two high notes are on ease. So, Mr. Dilieberfuhlen in her in her big G minor aria. And later on, Tamino, mine. So whoever the singer was plainly loved E's. And singers have said to me, these E's, can they be ours? I said, well, Mozart. I said, well, yeah, but that was that. So forever, and you are forever horse trading uh, with singers. Just today, I've got a problem which has been in my mind this afternoon, and maybe you can help me. 
I'm doing uh, A Merry Widow, which is on at the Met in New York right now. Um, and it's opened, and it opened with René Fleming singing uh, Hannah Glavery, who was the Merry Widow of the title. And now Susan Graham has taken over. Uh, Susan Graham's a great artist, and so is René Fleming, nothing against them. Um, however, Vilia or Vilia, famous song, Vilia or Vilia, du wirst mit mir and fass mich und lass mich dein Herzliebchen sein. Okay, which means, Vilja, Vilja, you witch, you witch maiden, hold me and let me be your beloved. It's got a rhyme. Um, so I came up with, Vilja, oh Vilja, you magical child, which is okay. My aching heart is bewitched and beguiled. <coughs> you have to be there, okay? It sounds good. Um, <laughs> However, and you think, well, that took a long time to get, and it's fine. And the original director, I wanted to say, I want the word witch in there, because she's a hexer, and a hexer. So, so behexed is a great word, so can you get bewitched in there? So I got bewitched, and I got beguiled, and magical child. Now, Susan Graham, as of three hours ago, uh, emails me and says she doesn't want to sing magical child, because it sounds like that the person she's singing about in this opera is someone who wants to make love to a child. In other words, a paedophile. And you think, okay, <laughs> it's, it's not. And what in the opera? It's actually someone singing an old folk song, mm. and it's not Susan Graham. It's Hannah Glavery, and Hannah Glavery is quoting an old mm. folk song from an imaginary country. And I, you know, the idea of calling someone "you beautiful child" is because I'm steeped in, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and I, mm. and so on. Mm. It doesn't seem this anyway. She feels very. She says it makes me very, very uneasy, and, and it will make. It will make the audience extremely uneasy. And I don't want to make anyone feel uneasy. And I'm in the business of saying, you got it. I will do something else. And then the chorus master comes and says, we can't because the chorus have learned Magical Child and they have to now <laughs> sing something else. And I said, nevertheless, the star must have what you want. So I'm going to find a new line. So if you can think of something for me, that'd be great. <laughs> she, sent, she sent me something. She said, what I'd like to sing is, Vida, Vida, you nymph of the wild. Oh, wild was at the top of the Nymph of the Wild. And what on earth is the Nymph of the Wild? I don't know. To actually, a naked, well, exactly, a Nymph of the Wild sounds worse to me. <laughs> sounds like great lashings of Nabokov there. Um, so I don't know. So I'm going to come up with something or other, um, which rhymes. And to be honest, it's nice because I, I went back, I thought of the German, sang it to myself, and I suddenly thought, last. Lass, fass mich und lass mich dein, dein Herzliebchen sein. Um, hold me, fass mich, and let me be. So, and there's a nice little internal rhyme there, which actually I didn't do because I was too busy doing bewitching. So I might try and find, if I yep. can, yep. an internal rhyme there. <coughs> but these problems happen all the time, and from Mahagoni rehearsals daily, a singer is saying, some singers who you've just mentioned, Christina Rice, is a brilliant singer. She feels happier singing this. And sometimes it's even more random than that. I'll give you another example. Carreras, Jose Carreras, I did some, some pop songs for him. Um, he's a lovely, lovely, gorgeous man, Catalan. And I did some nonsense about love brighter than a firefly or something like that. It's tosh. Um, and he said, what is this firefly? I said, um, I said, well, it's an insect. It's, I mean, I assume in Catalonia you have, you said, an insect. I said, it's an insect, and it's, it, its bottom glows. And then I, <laughs> this isn't going well. And he said, he said, he said, I do not sing about insects. 
So, Harry Bertram doesn't take the word underpass. Jose Carreras. Well, I think underpass was um, an excuse for, the, <laughs> for not doing for it. not having, yeah, not wanting a, a narrative, a narrative through line. It could have a narrative through line. It did, yeah. I think the point, the point is that you never know what people mean. Very, very often, and mm-hmm. when I'm uh, even with uh, talking about music, when someone everything's collaboration, and, and sometimes we're not dealing in words, words don't quite do it. Mm-hmm. Shapes, and how does a composer think about music in big, dark shapes? Sometimes I don't know, and you know, he needs your words to inspire him, obviously, but then there are other shapes that come from that, and it's wonderful, it's a wonderful thing, but you're, you're sculpting in snow, and you're wandering in the dark sometimes, and sometimes the oddest thing will remind you of this, or remind you of that. Particularly, I find, with music, you know, describing a piece of music, before the days of, of, of computers, mm. someone would say, I want a bit of music that sounds like, that does this, and I'd say, yes, I can I do it. Mendelssohn said if you could describe it, you wouldn't need the music, would you? Yes. Um, in a way. Yes. Um, you, you, you raised Wagner, that's someone we have to go through, but to go through Wagner to Bertlesel and your libretto for um, Gawain, mm. uh, people have raised the idea of parallel between Parsifal and Gawain as yeah. well. Did yeah, you, yeah. Were you conscious of that when you wrote the Absolutely not. No, never, <laughs> never, never crossed my mind. Mm. Uh, Miss Lambie, talking about Asinus, I was reminded that a wonderful moment in educating Rita yeah. when she says to Frank, uh, what is assonance? And he explains in great detail what assonance is. And so she says, oh, I see, it's getting the rhyme wrong. <laughs> I love it. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I didn't really have Parsifal in mind. I mean, Sir Garwin and the Green Knight obviously a kind of benchmark for any English poet. So when when that was suggested to me, I was I was eager to do it. But um, I changed everything really. <laughs> well, I didn't change everything, but what I decided. Well, if you've read, I mean, I don't know if you've read Sir Garwin and the Green Knight, um, but uh, Morgan Le Fay, who is the who is the uh, um, dark. Um, creature behind, behind what goes on um, is barely mentioned, she barely appears she appears as a, an old crone who was a servant to Bertolac's wife uh, in the um, Castle Out Desert section um, and um, I decided to make her the engine of the piece so Murray Angel who sang who sang um, Morgan is is She's in every setup, pretty much. I mean, she's she's rarely off stage. In fact, I'm trying to think whether or not she is ever off stage, and I can't. But but if she is, it's very briefly. Um, and I was very. I think, um, you know, when when you're approached, or at least when I'm approached, or when someone is approached by a composer who has an idea um, for an opera, and it's almost always the composer going to the librettist and saying, look, I'd, I'd like to do an opera about. Um, so, and my assumption is that, 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 he, that the composer probably has been, has been thinking about this for a long time and probably has music in his head already. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's going to come from that direction. It's, it's, going, it's going to be the composer sort of, you know, having notions about how the thing might go. Um, but... But then there comes the matter of how you're going to dramatise the piece if it's you know, not a... Well, you're either going to adapt it if it's, if it's already a, a play um, or else you're going to um, dramatise it if it's, if it's um, 
something like Sadoin and Green Knight. Um, and one of the problems I was faced with, or not problems, one of the opportunities I was faced with in Sagawain of Green Knight um, is there's very little dialogue. I mean, f- people don't say much in it. Um, so it was how to, um, in, in effect, um, adapt it for the stage by writing a play that was going to be set to music. Um, and uh, I guess what happens is that the composer will have a notion of where the centre of the piece is for him, you know, where the sort of growth centre of, of the piece is. And the Brettists might have a similar sort of idea about what is the growth centre. They might not coincide. Um, so with Garwain, but, but, it, but, but it can be, it, it can be a, 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 a useful kind of, um, you know, um, it, it can be a useful uh, um, uh, way of doing things. Um, it, you know, it can be a tension that uh, is productive and creative. So in the case of Garwain, I was re- Harry. I said to Harry once, why, "Why did you want to, you know, do this opera? Why did you want to to do it?" He said, "I wanted to see how they would make a noble pantomime horse. I wanted to see that horse on stage." Now I knew that wasn't everything, <laughs> but but I also knew that Harry has this very very strong sense of theatre, um, and and the folkloric aspect of Sir Garwin and the Green Knight, which is actually not all that big, but it was to Harry, um, you know, mattered to him. What I was really interested in, I mean, I wasn't really interested in the Arthurian court. I sort of saw them as a kind of, and, and indeed I depicted them as a sort of, you know, bunch of beardless boys with kind of liking for male bonding and shining ar- shiny armour. Really and uh, But... Um, for me, it was what went on at Castle Out Desert. Mm. For me, it yeah. was the women <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and the effect of the women. So Morgan in particular, but also the woman that I called Lady Out Desert, um, the lady, as she's called in the poem. Uh, um, I had to give her a name. Um, and the fact that her role in it is, is in a sense, tragic. And Morgan's is... Um, it's kind of virtuous in a strange kind of shadow way. So there was my interest in it. I mean, because Garwain returns to the Arthurian court um, having put on, you know, shadow, a little Jungian notion creeping in there, um, and is the sort of rotten apple in the barrel, uh, you know, that's going to sort of, in a sense, kind of cause what Morgan wants to happen to happen. Um, with the Minotaur, um, Harry and I sat down and one of us said and I can't remember who it was but the other one immediately said yes that's the way I want it too was say, you know this is going to be quite slim um, this is going to be quite a slender piece you know I think she should be on the beach waiting for the ship to come in mm. you know with the innocence and Theseus aboard and so on and we almost might have said it together because so that's the way it was going to work that's the way it was going to work and so on but for Harry the very very strong um, aspect of this was uh, the man in the beast, the beast in the man mm-hmm. um, and, and for me too I mean I was intensely interested in that but when I sat down to think about the piece and thought you know kind of what's in this for me which is I think what you sort of have to do with any commission, it doesn't matter whether it's a poem that's been commissioned or whatever, you have to say what's in this for me and if the answer is not much don't do it basically mm-hmm. um, Because when he's a, uh, a beast the minotaur doesn't sing words does he? Oh well that's yeah. interesting, I mean yeah. Well, I was just going to say that, yes. that when I sat down to think about it, 
my first thought was, why Naxos? That was my oh, first nice. thought. Why Naxos? You know, and, and that whole business of the corrupt deal between um, between um, uh, um, thesis and everything. But that you know that that's where that came from. That's where that came from. Um, sorry, uh, I was just saying from a librettist point of view, someone asked you to write an opera about the Minotaur who, uh, as an animal, isn't going to be using language. <laughs> exactly. Well, initially, I thought that the Minotaur might be um, inchoate throughout mm. um, and possibly, you know, when dying, sort of come into speech. I mean, in other words, the... the you know, King Kong. Well, yes, sort of, yes, yeah, in a kind of way. But, yeah, not in a kind of way, actually. Um, so I thought that might be the case. So the idea was that throughout, the Minotaur would sort of make bullish noises um, and then right at the end, he, he, you know, the, the human aspect, the, the, the man inside the beast might come to the fore and be coherent in some way or another. And then somebody said, well, actually, we're casting John Tomlinson <laughs> as a minor And I thought, oh, well, he'll need a line or two. <laughs> so, so it didn't work out that way. But, but it was interesting that the balance sort of worked okay. It worked yeah. well for us. I don't... I, it, what the process you're describing, you know, sounds how shall I put this, tricky, because, um, you know, I, I would find it very difficult if, if, if somebody said, I can't really sing the word child, because I, I think I'd sort of say, behave, you know. <laughs> I'd do it. I've been doing it for, yeah, I, I've moved, I, well, yes, of course you um, tend to say that. Yeah, yes. I'll bet, I'll bet, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not, I mean, um, so the business for me anyway, uh, I think, is that um, is that I have to remake the piece. Yeah. Um, I have to make it dramatic. I have to uh, um, write a play that's going to be set to music. But I have at the back of my mind the fact that it's going to be set to music. Yeah. Um, although I don't actually, because I wouldn't know how to, and I don't think you can make any concessions to, especially with modern music, obviously. Mm. Um, you know. Um, I, I, I wouldn't know how to um, facilitate that, mm. um, and I've never been asked to. I mean, Harry's mm. never asked me to. Um, Hugh didn't. Mm. You know, I mean, but you have to. You know, you have to pay attention to. I remember saying to Hugh Watkins when we were writing in the lock room, mm. and I'd finished the libretto, and I said, "Look, I've finished it. Here it is." And we were. Hugh's got some bar in Soho he knows about. And they said astonishingly potent cocktails, and um, and I handed it over to him, and I said, "Any problems? Just." Obviously, give me a ring. You know. yeah. So the next morning, I got a phone call, and he said, oh, "Well, there's a problem." And I said, "What is it?" He said, "The first word." <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, I said, "I think I said, what? What don't you like about it?" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. He just said, "I can't set it." And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well, it's the wrong sound." Underparts. No, it wasn't underparts. <laughs> no, it wasn't underparts. Um, it was it was by no wait a minute it was near it was the word near so I, which I substituted by oh, oh. You know, by the village that's unlocking the whole <laughs> wow. yeah um, yeah so so you know there are certainly those um, aspects to it and with Harry often theatrical aspects yeah, yeah. Um, but I do we do go to to and fro while I'm mm. while I'm writing I mean when I was writing Garwain it was my first ever yeah, yeah. piece for the opera yeah. stage. I was unbelievably green. I mean, I you know, um, I knew how to write poetry. At least I think I did. I mean, sort of ish. 
Mm. <laughs> um, but at one point I phoned him up and I'd, I'd written eight or ten pages of this libretto and I said, um, will there be a chorus? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it will. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, let's talk. <laughs> so that was how that went along. But anyway, once I got the hang of it. Jeremy, do we have time for you to talk about The Enchanted Island, which is a fascinating sure. project, I think. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I'm doing a few things. Um, actually, recently, a couple of... There's probably rather decadent sounding, but a few caprices, as it were, which are nice. Um, I've got one right now, which is about to go into rehearsal in Chichester. And this, that caprice is, what would have happened if P.G. Woodhouse and George Gershwin had written a musical together, which they never did? But I weirdly have got permission from the estate of the George Gershwins and the P.G. Woodhouses to write a piece which would be the imaginary collaboration of these two. I, I don't know why these things entertain me, um, but they do. And I had another one which was the most odd thing, which was a thing called The Enchanted Island, which is a commission from the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And the only commission was this, showcase a lot of very obscure Baroque opera into an opera. That's it. That's all I had. And, uh, and it turned out, in the end, to be a, quite a big and complicated and quite successful piece, which was very odd, because I took that idea and, and ran with it, and, and basically I started by listening to a great deal of Baroque music for about a year. This being opera, I had, you know, have a five or six year run into the thing. It's craziness. And then I was looking for... And, and one thing I thought of was... was, was because it's a new piece and so many a new piece but so many Baroque pieces are based on stories that exist and as we've had the Minotaurs and, and, and Gawain's you know it's good to have a story that exists and so much Baroque is mythology so I thought about Shakespeare and I thought oh, we'll do a Shakespeare I'll do a Shakespeare opera why not and then I thought who else has and I thought about Dryden and Dryden wrote a fantastic version of The Tempest Called, uh, which is called The Tempest or The Enchanted Island, which is a great piece if everybody gets to read it because he realised the problem with The Tempest, there's not enough female nudity in it. <laughs> it's been the restoration. And apart from that, it's a great piece. So, so you have um, also, you know, Sycorax, who was mentioned in The Tempest, who, who's, who is a naked, half-naked savage, you know, sorceress. And Miranda's got a sister called Dorinda, who's boy-mad. And, this for, and, and, and um, it's just fantastic. So I thought, well, I'll use that. But, the, but there weren't enough parts in it, and there weren't enough love interest, really. Um, so I, the other thing I thought of would be great would be some Midsummer Night's Dream, because the lovers in Midsummer Night's Dream are fantastic. It's a, obviously an amazing play, but I think the lovers are the best thing ever. Better than Mechanicals, better than Thesis and the Policy. They're brilliant, brilliant. And they're very SHEV, they're very soprano after tenor bass, they're very cosy fantasy, they're very, mm-hmm. very operatic. So that's when I got the silly idea of what would happen if the lovers for the Midsummer Night's Dream, after Midsummer Night's Dream on their honeymoon, um, go off on, on, a, on a trip in a boat and get caught in a, in a tempest and get marooned on an island. And that's what happens. And what actually happens was Ariel thinks that that ship is the ship that's bringing Ferdinand uh, to, to, to shore, etc., with hilarious results. Um, and you get, and I had got the chance of really doing quite complicated plots with four lovers and um, and Miranda and eventually Ferdinand, 
and Ariel, who becomes Puck and anoints the wrong person, etc., 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 etc. The point being that for Baroque opera, what you need is something that just generates an aria. It's uh, a Baroque opera libretto, which this is, is, a, is an aria generating machine. Um, generally, not necessarily with action, you know, as in Racine, people, people rush on and say, you know, a sea monster's just eaten Thebes. <laughs> and someone has an aria that goes, oh, I, lo- I loved Thebes. <laughs> it's a real shame. Of course, nowadays, because I'm, I'm rather decadent, I want to see the sea monster. Um, so, while I was working on this piece, various bits of casting came through. You know, so they we had Joyce De Donato was in it, mm-hmm. and Daniel Denise and those people. Oh, I thought, okay, well, she can be Ariel, and and um, you know, David Daniels was a cast. I know that would be good as, as, as Prospero, and so on. And they carried on like that. The the most felicitous thing, and when a piece works well. As, as all of us know, as I'm sure you know, David, if it's going well, it just is like a game of patience. It just comes mm-hmm. out in a way, oh, my God. And, of course, the next time it doesn't, you think, why? It's, and when it comes out, it comes out great. And when it doesn't, you just think, I've never done this before. Why can't I? You know, I'm hopeless. Why do I ever think I have any sort of creative person at all? Very, very mysterious. And a good example of just this accident is they... Called in touch and said, we've, We're all excited about this. Domingo wants to be in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they said, Yeah, Domingo wants to be in it, but he doesn't want to do going to rehearsals. Because <laughs> 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 Domingo demands a massive fee nowadays, and uh, particularly he doesn't have to come into rehearsals very much. So, um, so he can't do very much, but what he's got to he's got to be yeah. important, an important character. So, and my plot wasn't working very well in various areas. So, I had, so these two things fell out, which was I thought oh, he can be the great god Neptune. I suddenly thought, okay, I can see Domingo with, you know, strips of the weight of the trident and seaweed. Um, and he can, and anytime there's a problem, this is exactly what happens in Baroque operas. Anytime there's a problem with a bit of plot you can't work out, a god comes on him <laughs> and changes the plot. Um, so this is extremely handy so he comes on twice once in act one and once in act two he loved it he'd, he'd never played a god before yes, yes, yes. he was so excited about it oh Jeremy he's up there god and he did have a and he was the best thing in it he was brilliant it was just fantastic so that's a so thus this plot got more and more um, complicated and actually often very simple and it fell out in a nice shape in fact, the shape of it was something I was working on in other areas. It was very much the shape of a, t- of a, of a two-act musical um, with a dream ballet in Act Two. I'm very interested in the dramaturgy of, of, of musicals, and actually, I, just for my own amusement, gave that the shape of a musical. Um, and, uh, for example, there was a slow, a slow curtain at the end of Act One and the dream ballet in Act Two. And the friend came and saw it and said... It's West Side Story, isn't it? And so you're absolutely right. I thought no one was bothered. He's just absolutely West Side Story. So the dramatic shape of musicals, which is quite different from opera, um, in every possible way, mostly to do with, well, the forms are very different, mostly to do with money. Opera's a way of spending money. Musicals are a way of making money. And that's what their function is. And it has been historically and always will be. And, of course, there are exceptions, but very few operas never pay for themselves, never have done since Monteverdi and, and even now, you know. Especially uh, now. Especially now. Well, you know, there was a brief moment about 1840 when opera was a popular medium. 
It paid for itself, but only just. Musicals have to make money. Stephen Sondheim thinks that Sweeney Todd is a big failure because it failed to make money on Broadway. Um, so you have to get what you pay. And weirdly, actually, that pragmatism of, of money being spent and money being made, I found very influential and actually quite helpful. And when you say, you know, I would tell someone who wouldn't want to sing the word child, just behave... I think, well, yes, but actually I'm a hired hand here. I'm a hired gun. You know? Well, there's that aspect to it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, I take I your point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose, if, I, I don't know, if, if a singer... Well, they wouldn't be saying it to me, they would be saying it to Harry, I suppose. But if a singer said, you know, I, I can't sing this word, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, then I would think... Um, well, I, I, I suppose it, if Harry said, I don't think they can sing this... In fact, that's happened. Um, it's happened with this new piece, The Cure. Mm-hmm. And I've forgotten what the word is now. Underbass. No. <laughs> um, hang on, it will come to me in a second. Bye. Now you see a premium. <laughs> um, it's Wirt. Oh, well, fair enough. Who can sing Wirt? Wirt. As in, <laughs> as as in Wirt Moon. Wirt Moon. A Wirt Moon is a harvest moon. Right. Seems simple enough to me. And Harry said, I don't think that, 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 um, that she's going to be able to sing it. Um... And I said, well, let's find out, because there are other words I could stick in there. But that has to do with, with um, some kind of difficulty I neither understand nor fully admit. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, but if, uh, if a singer said, I can't sing this, I suppose it would, it would be Harry's problem, wouldn't it? But, I mean, it would have been the way he set it, and he doesn't make those mistakes or anything. So I may have given him a difficulty with Wirt Moon. I believe he has set it. We shall see whether it actually gets through to the second day of rehearsals. Um, well, probably, probably not. It's, fa- um, it's fascinating because you have to. We are living in the real, the real world, but of course that's true. You know, it's that balance yeah. is sort of a daily concern. Well, so I think yeah. I think it has to. It does have to do with what you're saying about language. The poetry uh, is is um, is you know, lyric poetry is 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 not. Um, necessarily dramatic in the way that, that you know it can't be vocalised necessarily uh, dramatically. Um, can it? Well, I suppose it ought to be able to be, mm. but um, hmm, not sure. I mean, the difference, the, you know, the difference is that that that, that um, writing for any stage, whether it's the opera stage or whether it's whether it's just whether it's a play, um, <coughs> you know, you. You, I think you avoid willful obscurity in the same way that you avoid, um, you know, kind of something that is difficult, tricky, or wrong, or obscure mm. in, in, in language, or, or, or has a double meaning, or something yes, of that yes. kind. You'd, you'd avoid that. Um, but that sort of comes by instinct, I think, doesn't it? If, you, if you're writing a part for somebody... I mean, you're kind of being your own censor as you go along. Absolutely. I think, trying to be... And it's, sometimes the things I've written, the, um, the actors said, well, the ca- my character wouldn't say that. I saying, I oh, wrote yeah. your bloody character. <laughs> I have don't, a wonderful Don't tell me what you were saying. You know? In the days when I used to make a living writing for telly. Yeah. Um, what <laughs> did I, you write? Which I said I wouldn't make. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in, I was in, this, um, in the gallery, and, and uh, uh, Morris Grant and Lawrence Marks were they've written this, um, developed this show... I'd done a couple of episodes on it. And, and uh, somebody said from the floor, one of the actresses said, I don't think my character would say that. Um, uh, well, actually, the floor manager said, she doesn't think her oh. character would say that. And Morris said, well, tell her to look in the script. If it's there, obviously she would. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, but there's another aspect of this which is um, to do with translating poetry um, or, or versioning poetry, yes. and, and that distinction is is um, uh, you know a battlefield really. Um, in, have you been translated? Yeah, I have been translated. Yes, but into I, I'm, what languages? I'm, I'm, I'm a shameful monolinguist, so I haven't. But you speak that one very well. Yeah, I really, want, <laughs> I really wanted to have had your childhood. Um, Trust unfortunately, me. I have my own, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was um, had more to do with the horny-handed sons of toil from Devonshire than anything else. Um, yeah, I have. Into what languages? Um, um, Japanese, um, Italian, German, uh, French. Others. That's fantastic. <laughs> How does that feel? That must be. Um, most recently, oh, um, 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 what used to be called Serbo Croat, but now right. call it that at your peril. <laughs> <laughs> so Bosnian right. would be the answer. Yes, yeah. um, and, oh, just most recently German. Most recently German. But I just have to be trusting. Um, well, I mean, I get friends who are fluent to mm. tell me whether. There was a wonderful example of uh, uh, Robin Robertson, you know, wonderful poet. I uh, was being translated into uh, Italian, and um, he looked at, uh, um, or I don't know, if Robin reads Italian, but anyway, oh no, he, he, uh, his translator called him and said, uh, "I've got a problem with this business of the sardines." Mm. And Robin said, "There are no sardines anywhere in any of my poems." <laughs> yes, yes, there are. He said, "You've made a reference to it in this poem." And Robin looked at it, and the word he'd used was silverfish. Uh, and the guy had no idea what silverfish were. So Robin said, well, they're little critters that run around the skirting board. And, uh, so I said, well, he translated it as sardines. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got one of those. The, uh, oh, yeah. I, I worked a lot with various times with Alan Bennett, and Alan Bennett showed me some translations of one of his Talking Heads things into French, because I had to look back at them to see how they were. And then one of them, the... the um, it was a Patricia Routledge character looking through at the neighbours. They said they've got their tea, having their tea, no cloth on, meaning no tablecloth. That means they're common. I read the translation, having their tea, no clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I, had, I can't remember what they are now, but I, actually it's not, German is not the most right, but translated Greek more recently. And, um, um, and I, had, I was in Athens doing a, doing a two-day job for... British Council, and, and um, so I met the translator, and he had a whole list of questions, which were really interesting. Um, I mean, not interesting, that is to say, it was like no clothes on. Mm. It was that. It was that sort of sort of thing, and you realise exactly how kind of you know kind of how exclusive idiom is to a language. And, but also, and it's what's fascinating is language are complete worlds, mm. and how a word, a single word, any word falls on, on a French ear or a Greek mm. ear, even though something as silly as, you know, bread, meat. Yeah. Those, yeah. There's, no, there's no divorcing from culture. The minute you say, I'm actually, my, my poetry is becoming in, translated into Greek, I bet the Greekness of your poetry comes right out. Well, I'd like to think so. You know, yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I would love to. But, but also you have to, <clears throat> sometimes, I mean, I've taken sort of quite, you know, there is this kind of very, very strong, uh, difference of opinion about strict translation or mm. being as close as you possibly can to the original mm. and taking liberties um, in order to find a poem in English which is more um, uh, I don't know, which does the job better, which is which is a better realisation of the, of the spirit of the original poem as opposed to I mean the, 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 the Penguin used to do this series of um, uh, um, 
uh, translations where the poem yeah. in the in the original language and then it was a, there was a prose gloss yeah, underneath right. and I thought that was the best Absolutely possible version right. you could get if you wanted a strict translation yeah. rather than a verse translation. Mm. Um, my versioning, I mean, because I don't I don't speak any um, other language um, than English, um, which I struggle in, um, uh, have been. Um, you know, I, I've triangulated uh, sometimes versions by, um, I, I, for example, Yanis um, Ritsos, um, I, I did some versions of um, eventually, although I, I toyed with Ritsos, and, or he toyed with me for a decade and a half, and then I, um, then I got serious about it and started to, because I was so emotionally affected by those poems mm -hmm. in the end. And, um, and I decided I just had to take liberties in order to find to find the poem so um, I've got some examples here which I won't now read, but, but on one occasion I, 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 well I'll just do one, I won't read the poem but I'll just give you one example of, of a version of, of a thing um, this is a poem called The New Dance Ritzos called it The New Dance and it's about the moment when um, uh, when um, it, it's about the Minotaur, it's that story, and, and it's Theseus emerging from, from the uh, labyrinth with the innocents, who of course he saves. As I say in my opera, they meet appalling deaths. <laughs> um, but then as, as Harry said, Tony Papano said, well, these, are these innocents children? Uh, this was before we even got started, and Harry said, no, no, children are pain in the arse in opera. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he starts like this, um, and it is to do with the dance that uh, um, that um, Theseus and the Innocents uh, famously did at Delos uh, in front of the altar, the Keraton. And he starts like this: not only pretenses, but actual motives and great results. This is Kimon Fryer's translation: not only pretenses, but actual motives and great results, sufferings, profits, dangers, fears. Pacify, Minotaur, Labyrinth and Ariadne with her beautiful erotic thread branching out as a guide in the rocky darkness. And later the return of Theseus triumphant. At Delos he stopped and there around the Keraton, the famous altar constructed entirely of animal horns, the left ones only, Theseus danced with the Athenian Ephebes as his companions, a new exciting dance with crisscrossing steps, which perhaps depicted in the powerful midday light the dark turns of the labyrinth. I mean, that's about half the poem. Um, and it's dreadful, frankly. <laughs> but, um, so I started like this. <clears throat> The clue, the clue is the, you know, the ball of twine that uh, she uh, told him to pay out as he went into the labyrinth so he could follow it back. The clue paying out through his fingers, a deafness that would bring him back to her, its softness, the softness of skin, as if drawn from herself directly, the faint labial smell guiding him up and out as some dampness on the air might lead a stone-blind man to the light. Now that's sort of the, that's the way he kind of, it's not quite the way, but it's, it's the essence of the way he ends his poem, okay? And I end mine, just a couple of lines. Um, Nowadays we don't think much, 
about Theseus, the Minotaur, Ariadne on the beach at Naxos, staring out at the coming years. But people still dance that dance, just common folk, those criss-cross steps that no one had to teach, at weddings and wakes, in bars or parks, as if hope and heart could meet, as if they might even now somehow dance themselves out of the dark. Now you can see that's not a lot like, you know, but but pretty much everything that I thought crucial about Ritz, and that's not the only uh, version, um, uh, literal-ish version of that poem that I looked at. And also I have um, Greek friend. One is a uh, is a, a poet, and the other is a theatre designer. Um, and I said to them, you know, both could could you just give me word for word literals? Of this, in fact, to the to the Greek friend who's she's American Greek, uh, who was a poet, I said nothing of poetry mm-hmm. in this, or there'll be trouble. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did triangulate it. So, so I think that the essence of Ritzos's poem is in there. In fact, I'm sure it is. Um, and there are images from Ritzos, and there's a kind of narrative drift which is there from Ritzos, but um, it's it's a, it's a, a different poem in, in many ways. Um, so, but there's not that freedom, I guess, for you. That in, in, I don't mean, what, I, what, I, what I mean to say is that... Uh, there's all sorts of... Well, it depends what I'm... As it happens, translating opera, it is, there's still freedom there, but I've got to fit to an existing piece of music. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, which that's, is, that's what I meant to say. Which is, fascina- which is fascinating, <laughs> and, and is like three-dimensional chess sometimes. It really is. And get the rhymes, and get the vowels, and get the... Dimension fireflies or underpasses. It's very hard. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And what's lovely about it is you've backed off and come back, and it's just wonderful. I started where he ends. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, you know, it's okay. I mean, a purist will sort of say, What do you think you're doing? You know, messing about with yeah. Yeah. Ritzos. And my answer would be, Look, you know, for my money, Yanis Ritzos is one of the great poets of the 20th yeah. century. I mean, should have got the Nobel Prize, didn't because he's a commie. You know. Elisa's Elisa's got it instead. It was Greek turn, you know. Yeah. Elisa's a great poem, a great poet, a wonderful poet. You know. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't sort of, you know, knowingly or even, and certainly not gleefully, you know, um, you know, bugger him about, quite frankly. But Just t- talking about um, with someone like Dream earlier, suddenly reminded me of talking is, is that when, when, um, when Bottom reappears to the Mechanicals as a donkey, mm-hmm. do you remember what they say? They were translated. <laughs> I mean, he's still bottom, but he's a donkey. That's a translation. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's still it's a different beast, but it's the same beast. There is um, um, Marlene Dumas, you know, the painter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's got a, a, an exhibition on at the at, uh, Take One of the Moments. If you don't know her work, go and see it. It's absolutely... I came up on my knees. It was like going to see the Anselm Kiefer exhibition, mm-hmm. you know, almost kind of, you know, couldn't go through all the rooms, just absolutely amazing stuff. But she says one thing she said um, about painting, um, or, you know, she works often from photographs and she mm-hmm. modifies them and so um, And she said, when you change the colour, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And there's something, there's some truth in that about translation. When you change the colour, everything changes. So once you start to develop, um, you know, uh, um, once you start to frame up a new way of saying something, or a new way of expressing something, uh, or conveying it, or whatever the term might be, as soon as you change, you know, colour being a metaphor, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a quick one on that one because about how a translation lands on different ears. I suddenly remembered, I, I must have said, a translation a few years ago of a play by Anouy called Beckett. And uh, Madame Anouy came to the show and, uh, and she said afterwards, she said, it's a fantastic translation. I said, thank you very much indeed. I can't help noticing that you don't speak any English at all. Um, and she said, no, and it's a good translation because all the laughs are in the right place and the right length. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's done the nicest compliments. And, to, and I don't seem in any way immodest repeating this, but I, it just struck me as rather good because the words were very different in many, many ways, but the re- reaction on the audience in England in the 1990s was the same as she wanted from France in the 1950s. So maybe that's what translation yep. is. But, so it's, it's quite hard to divorce from where it's going to land. Mm. But then, of course, you're quite right, you've got the business of music to attend Mm. to and and making that. There's a wonderful story, just about apropos, really, I'm sure you know it, about about Showboat and uh, um, um, Oscar Hammerstein's wife going in to see a production of Showboat, not the premiere or anything, and um, two women going in before her. This is a story that I like to tell to, to lyricists and librettists <laughs> as a defence. Um, and um, one woman is saying to the other, oh, there's a, show, there's a song in the show which is just so wonderful. Have you seen the show? She said, no. It's a wonderful song in the show. Um, Jerome Kern wrote it. It's called, yeah, it wasn't Jerome Kern. Was it? Yes, it was. Um, uh, it's called Old Man River. It's absolutely extraordinary. You'll love it. It'll just knock you out. And Oscar Hammerstein's wife tapped her on the shoulder and she said, actually, my, my husband, Oscar Hammerstein III, wrote Old Man River. Jerome Kern wrote, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> so I sometimes tell my students that yeah. <laughs> story to, to try and give them a little courage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like, I think I'd like to throw this open to the audience, but just briefly, because we're the LSE and politics has to come into this just briefly. Uh, there's a political connection with Goran Simic and there's a collective Oh, with, yeah. With Ritzos, too. Yeah, um, with yeah. Ritzos. Well, yeah. Ritzos, of course, was famously... I mean, he, he was... Um, he was... Uh, um, uh, badly treated by, first, the Metaxas regime, who mm. burnt his books publicly in front of the Acropolis. <laughs> um, then, during the um, Civil War, because he was a communist and, um, during the war. And then, by the, by the colonels, of course, the Junta... Uh, and he was on all occasions in prison, tortured. Uh, latterly, under the colonels, he was sent to um, he was sent to a, an island detention camp, which was a lot like a concentration camp, but it wasn't a death camp. And the extraordinary thing, the extraordinary things about Ritzos was that he wrote mm-hmm. and wrote and wrote and never stopped. If you held his collected works in one hand, it would be mm-hmm. five thousand pages long. I mean, mm-hmm. quite extraordinary. Um, and he didn't always write short lyrics like these. I mean, he wrote sort of great length, and he wrote politically, and he wrote the new house of Atreus, which was a sort of political metaphor and so on. But when he was in the camp, of course, writing was a proscribed activity. You could be, you know, beaten after death for doing it. He continued to write poems, and he hid them in the tins of this grotesque food that they were forced to eat, the empty tins, and he buried them around the parameter wow. of the yeah. of the camp in the hope that he might find them later. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary man. Yeah. So yeah, he was he was yeah. much afflicted. He had the most extraordinarily difficult life. I mean half his family his father um, lost uh, their fortune mostly through bad luck. Um, his father and his sister both went mad 
Uh, his mother and his brother both died of TB. He himself was confined to a sanatorium. Yeah. And then all this stuff, yeah. you know, because he was a communist, he was persecuted. With Goran, Sim- Goran Simic, um, I met because I used to go back and forth to Sarajevo, mm. courtesy of the British Council, and I made lots of friends there. And when the siege occurred, um, my wife and I were sending... Um, the black market currency was Deutschmarks. Mm. We were sending Deutschmarks with us. Um, um, journalists we knew who went went through and, and so on and so forth. Um, and who else did I mention earlier? Composer. Uh, oh, Steve, uh, Nigel Osborne. Nigel Osborne, yes, that's yes. right. Nigel Osborne went back and forth. Um, and, and so on. And Goran wrote um, an, a number of poems while he was under siege. And, and they were smuggled out to me um, in literal, absolutely strict literal, word-for-word translations, which were done by Amalus, which is then wife. Um, and they were really, I mean, they were living, they were living um, in the Turkish quarter, and um, they were show. I mean, Goran was about two minutes away from the, you know, the market when it was born. Um, and I started doing versions of those poems, working from Amala's um, uh, strict translations, not because I was so taken up by them, although I was for obvious personal reasons, but because I was trying to get them out of there. So I was, try- yeah. <laughs> I was trying to raise his profile because yeah. um, I knew somebody else, a, a, another poet, who had actually managed to get out, and, and uh, UEA yeah. um, <coughs> uh, gave him a sort of sinecure. Right. And, uh, yeah. Interestingly, when Goran and Amala finally did get out of the siege, which was only when the siege ended, really, um, they went to Canada and he was given the sinecure at the university yeah. there and so on. And, um, and, you know, I published a pamphlet uh, of them, but it really wasn't, and then I got sort of engrossed by them, then I got really sort of interested in what I was doing. Um, and I think it was those poems at the back of my mind, or that process at the back of my mind, that gave rise eventually to Legion. Yeah, yeah. And, Jer- and Jeremy, um, Mahagoni, is, is politics an element in there? Well, for interesting, Brecht and Weil. Yeah. Brecht one of the great political poets, I hope you agree. Yeah. And Weil, who I admire massively, chiefly actually for one thing that I was just thinking of, which is so salient, um, he left Germany the, the day Hitler came to power, and he was, you know, Jewish communist degenerate. Um, he had ticked every single box and he, and he fled, and did not speak German from that day till the day he died. Even to his wife, who was as German as he was, actually she's Austrian. Um, he goes, I couldn't. His, his English was actually. We went to Paris first, then went to New York. His English was execrable. I've got tapes of him talking in English. Couldn't speak English. He 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 would not speak the language of Hitler until the day he died. And I call that a political statement. <laughs> quite quite remarkable. Sure. I mean, really, really remarkable. Yeah. Thank you both very much. And can I now perhaps throw the discussion over? Are there any questions from, from the floor? Does anybody like to ask a point about uh, any of the points that have been raised by our speakers today? Hello. I was reading something by a translator of maybe Ezra Pound who was saying that in Italian, Pound is better. Uh, do you think that's possible even theoretically or practically or whatever? Do you think it's possible that you can translate and make the p- a poem better than it was? That's, I'd never heard, you know, I've never heard that said. Well, I don't speak Italian, so I don't know the answer. Um, I can see how, yeah, I can see how some 
Well, see, Pan wasn't wasn't a very bad poet. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, I can see how some very bad poetry might sort of be ameliorated mm. by having the gloss of another language or the cloak of another language thrown over it. I can see how that might work for sure. Pound, hmm, I don't know. It does beg the question, what do you mean by better? <laughs> I think a lot, of, a lot of pounds actually in Salian anyway, which doesn't, so that maybe those yeah, guys look better. Yeah. And in Japanese, of course, <laughs> and Chinese, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose it's possible, interesting notion. Yeah, maybe my Greek translations are better. <laughs> there are certainly writers who, who have a sort of reclame outside their own in-translation, outside their own language, you know, yeah, over, yeah. hugely, and we have them as well, you know. There's sometimes that kind of good um, macaronic moment. So I'm, I mentioned the Anselm Kiefer exhibition earlier, and um, there are two massive canvases, mm-hmm. one called Shilamit and the other called Marguerite, that's obviously from Tulsvuk. And... Um, uh, they had the poem in translation um, up on the wall, uh, close to these. I can't, I can't remember who the translator was. It wasn't Michael Hamburg or any, any you know. But and it wasn't. A, I seem to remember it wasn't an absolutely brilliant translation. It was okay. It was fine. But what I really liked about it was the fact that that he started with translating that that line that must have fallen to hand. I mean, you, you, you poems have to be worked out. You know that. But but sometimes something falls to hand. And it's just pure gift. Mm. And, you know, you sort of have to go away in a corner and think about it, come back and write it down. And I've always thought that, you know, der Tod ist ein Meister aus Deutschland must have fallen to hand. Mm. And what he'd done was he'd given it first in English and then gradually reduced that leitmotif or brought that leitmotif fully into German, which I thought was a completely brilliant way of doing it. Um, um, you know, so th- that was a sort of, yeah, interestingly sort of macaronic, you know, kind of way yeah. of doing it. I, um, totally approved of that. If only the rest of the translation had been up to it. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Yes, I'll go. Um, you, you talked, uh, well, you t- told us all about uh, vowels, consonants, and all this well, what we call prosody for, in poetry. Did you write, or do you write poetry yourself? I don't write poetry. And I mean, why? I, I, well, it's funny. I'm, it's, I think of myself weirdly as an emergency poet. You know, I should be in the, I should be in the yellow pages because um, if, if lines are needed that, 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 I, that are useful, then I'm absolutely a man. You know, what's this syllable? What rhymes with that? And f- funnily enough, this very evening, I made a promise to the rehearsal people at, at, at Covent Garden. I promised I would do their rewrites every night, so I'm doing rewrites tonight, and also for the Met, weirdly. I do sometimes write little poetry myself, but I like... It's, here's a weird thing. I, I set myself complicated rhyme schemes and shapes and then fill those bento boxes, as it were. So plainly, I'm most free in my harness. And <laughs> plainly. Um, but similarly, I've, I write music, and I write music for theatre and for movies and that sort of thing. I've never sat down and written a string quartet, because I think I... Unless someone asked me. So I think... I think I like it... I, I think maybe it's a lack of confidence. I like to be... You can't beat, and as, as David will know, we're working with, with composers. 
They say, I want something like this, and you do it, and someone says, that's exactly what I wanted. And for some reason, that's rather pleasing. Especially because it's exactly what you wanted. Well, yes, but actually that is what I mean. And more, and more, more diverse examples, actually writing music for Shakespeare. Shakespeare plays, and Shakespeare says, hear healing music. And you think, okay, he can't write that. I will write some healing music here. And you do, and you like to think, well, that... I've, I've filled a gap here. It was needed. Yeah. This sounds rather sort of utilitarian, um, but um, but I, I, I have written bits of. But funnily enough, um, I had recently a, a translation of Don Giovanni, which is quite a, an inventive one. Which I invented lots of done at the Colosseum. I invented all sorts of things that weren't in the original to do with the production, and I really went mad on it. Craig Rain liked it very much indeed, and published it in his book. Oh, yeah. And I thought, who in God's name, I, mean, I, I, I don't know who, but um, would want to read a translation of Don Giovanni. Oh, no. But it was, <laughs> there, it, there it was. And he, 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 so that was massively, I thought, oh my God, past my stuff has worth over and above its usefulness. Oh, I, yeah, no, I, I think that, I mean, that when, with me there's always a uh, text, you know. Yes. Because I know that it's going to sort of, you know, get buggered about a bit. Yes, um, and I quite like it too. I mean, in Gawain, for example, I wrote all these riddles for the fool, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and because I didn't know enough, I didn't go to rehearsals all that much. I sort of rather foolishly waited to be asked, um, and I got to quite a late rehearsal, and um, and I said, "Well, why is he singing the same riddle each time?" Oh, mm-hmm. And Harry said, "Well." Is there more than one? I said, yes, there's a different riddle for each occasion. But he hadn't noticed, so it written. And by that stage, I said, well, what can we change it? And he said, no, no, it's like unraveling a sweater, you know, they've learned it, you can't. Look at it. In, in, um, in Fidelia, actually, Beethoven at one point sets, sets a stage direction. Oh, well, so did, so did Strauss, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, really? yeah. What's the Strauss one? I, it's, it's Ariadne out next, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I can't remember. And I remember. In Fidelia, someone's with the finger up him once, someone says, when his finger on his mouth, and it's a stage direction. It's in, in, in Rock is over. With the finger up him once. What? <laughs> oh, I think the next, I'm going to slip in something that's a bit like a stage direction. <laughs> next, <laughs> yes. time, next time they fin- finish an aria with the word exit, you know yes. what's <laughs> yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stage to black reset. <laughs> 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 a question for David about Sir Gawain uh, talk about translation how do you see yourself in relation to the 14th century English I mean is it something you maintain a relation with or does it sort of fade fairly soon not really there's very little um, uh, in my libretto uh, you know, from, from, from the poem Little bits, you know, night after night they're dead from the sleet. He slept in his rocks, uh, in his irons, n- 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 naked rocks. Is sort of in there. That's kind of more or less he- held. Um, I mean, you know, it's a poem. I can I can read it in Middle English just about. You know, I stumble a bit, but I can just about read it in Middle English. Um, but really, it was the narrative that I had to I had to initially deal with. So my thinking was, how do I how do I make this work on stage? And once I once I'd begun to think about that, other things fell into place. Uh, one of them was, was making Morgan Le Fay the engine of the piece, quite frankly. Um, not just because I was interested in the women's roles in that, 
Um, but then I was Anne. When I gave Harry the minor tour, he said this should be called Ariadne, and I said, yeah, you're right, should, but there we are. We better call it the minor tour because that's John's Australia. But um, uh, so it was a dramatic undertaking initially. I mean, the undertaking was was, was to find a way of actually getting that on the stage in in a coherent and you know likable way, and pretty much everything had to take shape around that. Um, so there wasn't there wasn't a great deal of need actually to to uh, to um, to think about. Um, about the language, um, apart from the way that it that it held up narrative. And I think on that note, I would just before um, thanking you. First of all, put in a shameless plug for the other language centre event, which is tomorrow evening at uh, six thirty. And it's not in this building; it's in the old building in the Shaw Library. Yes, our library is named after, and in fact endowed by, I think. Uh, Mrs. Shaw, not not George Bernard. That's right. Yes, Charlotte. Um, it's only, but that's the, that's the setting for an evening of drama tomorrow evening. Uh, but uh, I think that's yeah, that's free event, and you're welcome to come along t- tomorrow night at six thirty. But to come back to my speakers this evening, thank you very much to Jeremy and to David Harson for this most stimulating uh, discussion of the theme of, of origins, translations, and adaptations, and with politics shoehorned in there at the end. But thank you both <laughs> very much, and pretty pleased to show that. Uh,